Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of Most Notorious, a murderer stalks southwestern Montana in the late 1960s and early 1970s. The lawyer is not only astounded, but so is the prosecutor when the defense lawyer comes to him and says, how about if you take the death penalty off the table and we confess to two more killings? Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. This episode involves the murder of a child, and listener discretion is advised. I am so pleased to have as my guest today, on his second visit to Most Notorious, Ron Francel. He is the acclaimed author of 18 books, including the international true crime bestsellers The Darkest Night, and the 2017 Edgar finalist, Morgue, A Life in Death. His debut book, Angel Fire, was listed by the San Francisco Chronicle as one of the 100 best novels of the 20th century West. Alice and Gerald, A Homicidal Love Story, one of his more recent books, was the subject of our most notorious interview back in 2019. And he is here today to talk about his newest book, titled Shadow Man, an elusive psycho killer and the birth of FBI profiling. Great to have you back on. Thank you for joining me once again. Eric, thank you for having me. I'm privileged to have a little more time with you. Yes, yes, this is exciting. So when did you first come across this case and what made you think it would be a great topic to write about? Uh, well, let me start by saying uh, the secret of my success as a writer has been that I never pick a story I can screw up. <laughs> and I think Shadow Man uh, early on struck me as one of those. I mean, its power was kind of universal. It was... Uh, a mother's anguish and persistence among the law enforcement and our fear of the dark. So 
um, immediately um, uh, it it appealed to me. I first heard about it when I was a senior writer at the Denver Post, and my job was covering the American West. And I think sometime in Montana, I heard the basic story, which is basically about a kidnapping and then uh, the resulting um, the creation of the FBI's first criminal profile. Uh, that's about all I knew. So I, I kind of set it aside and really didn't revisit it for uh, more than a decade. Uh, when I did, I discovered it was more than a simple kidnapping, a lot more. It was about this grotesque series of crimes in a part of the country where I grew up. I grew up in Wyoming, and this is in Montana, and they're otherwise indistinguishable except for maps. Um, but it was also this turning point in forensic history, and nobody had ever told the stories, either one of them. So uh, the more I the, the more I dug, the more I wanted to know. Um, and when it came down to it. I saw these two stories kind of on a collision course, these ghastly crimes and this historic moment. And it all centered around this one little girl. So let's just start there, if that makes sense. Will you tell us about the Jaeger family and their ill-fated vacation in June of 1973? Yeah, exactly. They they start west on this grand family vacation from Michigan. They stop at all the the wonderful roadside attractions along the way. And they end up in a small state park in Montana. Uh, they they have a great time there for a day or two, and the night before they leave, they expected to leave. Uh, four of their five kids kind of jam themselves into a camp tent and snuggle down in their sleeping bags uh, in close together to stay warm uh, and go to sleep. The next morning, uh, one of them awakes early and notices that there's a big hole in the back of the tent and that their little sister, Susie, was gone. Uh, at first, they think, you know, she's she's just a, pushed her way out with a ripped seam or something and is going to the bathroom or messing around outside. But very quickly, they realize she's not there. And um, as they begin to fear the worst, they call the sheriff and the sheriff calls the FBI, um, which is kind of required by federal law in cases like this. Uh, within hours, they've got a thousand people literally beating the bushes for this little girl, and they can't find her. Um, and they've got no evidence, they've got no witnesses, they've got no leads, so they have no suspects. And um, they're flat-footed, and they're not really sure where to turn next. And that's the way it stays for weeks and then months uh, until another crime happens. 
Right, yeah. I mean, a, a campground is a difficult place to look for suspects, people coming in and out all the time. How did law enforcement dragnet an area like that? Well, they, they, were, they were as confused as you are right now about how could someone in the middle of the night make their way to a camp tent that was uh, fairly centrally located in this park and surrounded by other campers. This is summer. Um, how could somebody make their way into the middle of a campground, slice open the back of a tent, drag out a little girl who they presumed would be struggling, uh, maybe even trying to scream, and get to a vehicle or something and get away and, and disappear. And, and that was where they were stumped. They, they, the only bit of evidence that they had was that the deputy who arrived on the scene first noticed a kind of footstep path through the dew in the grass toward a parking lot that was nearby. But Otherwise, that was it. That's all they had. And, of course, that disappeared uh, with, with the sun coming up. So uh, it, they were flummoxed. They, they had no idea. And a lot of it didn't make sense. Uh, but uh, th they remained frustrated for, as I say, for weeks and months. And it's only, you know, in February of 74, when a, a teenage waitress in a nearby, the little nearby town of Manhattan, Montana, goes missing. Now, they don't have any sense. They haven't even thought that these two things are related. Um, so they, they search for this young waitress and they find her car hidden in a barn at a remote abandoned ranch. And as they look closer, they find shards of bones scattered everywhere. They collect what they can. They send it off to the Smithsonian, which rules that indeed these bones were uh, the remains of a, a teenage to early 20s female. But among them were bones that belonged to a little girl under 10 years old. And at that point, they believed that this was, this, these were the remains of Susie Yeager. And they now had one criminal or one set of criminals instead of two separate crimes. And while that sounds like a break in the case, the fact remains, other than these bones, um, they had no real physical evidence. They still had no witnesses. They still had no legitimate leads. And of course, no suspects. So this continues to be a, uh, a frustrating situation for the lead FBI agent, a guy named uh, Pete Dunbar. So your book opens with a description of Southwest Montana and this little town of Manhattan. 
in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Normally a tranquil, idyllic area of the country, but there had been a couple of violent incidents, you write, that had caused grief in the community, uh, one on a bridge and another involving a Boy Scout. Yeah, um, in the late 60s, 67, um, a young boy, 13 years old, was with a friend and they were diving off a bridge into the river below, which what kids did in that town every summer. Um, when he suddenly cries out, I've been shot. And then he falls into the river and drifts away. The friend runs to the nearest farmhouse, which is about a mile away. And by the time cops arrive, deputies arrive, uh, there's no sign of this boy who was presumably shot from the top of the bridge. They do find him in a few weeks. Uh, and he indeed was shot in the chest. Uh, but it, it was determined that it, because murders don't happen in Manhattan, Montana. It's not that kind of town. It's this little, as you said, idyllic town. They presumed that he'd been hit by a stray bullet, you know, somebody hunting rabbits or target practicing something. Um, and that he'd been hit by a stray bullet that the shooter didn't even know happened. And that's the way they closed the case. So they just said uh, this was an accidental death, and um, it was put away. About a year later, uh, there's a Boy Scout gathering in that same park that we talked about earlier. Uh, and there were... 300 scouts there and they were all in pup tents that were arrayed throughout the park five six feet apart plus all their scout masters and troop leaders one night uh actually one morning um one of the scouts uh, just erupts in fear his tent mate was bleeding and and barely conscious. Uh, he mobilized the the uh, scout leaders who found this kid had been uh, looked like he had been beaten and uh, stabbed. Uh, they didn't know. They called the the sheriff who rushed the kid in uh, to the hospital, and a few days later, he died not of his stab wounds, but of his head injuries. It looked like somebody had bashed him with a blunt instrument or kicked him. Um, the investigation into that kind of went off in the direction of the tent mate, uh, you know, a 12-year-old kid. Uh, there, there was a belief that maybe they'd been, you know, um, roughhousing as little boys will do and was being done by all the scouts in this tamboree. And that during that, he had fallen and hit his head, and they kept it a secret so not to get in trouble, something like that. And again, that's kind of where they left it, that this was an accidental thing uh, and um, it didn't need to go farther. So... Uh, 
those two crimes are sitting back there in 1967 and 68, both related to this little town. Um, but they weren't considered murders. They were just tragic, accidental deaths. So after Susie Yeager disappears, authorities canvass the area, drumming up suspects, suspects that include uh, members of biker gangs, drifters. Right, right. Everything. I, I think there's, uh, they, they were fanning out across the region. Uh, they were going to the, the local bordello and asking the girls if they had, you know, done business with any especially weird people. And they were doing everything they could. They were doing what lawmen did and still do to a, a great degree. And that is a lot of footwork and uh, talking to a lot of people and trying to logic this thing out about what might have happened. Um, and they were still coming up empty. Um, the Sandra Smolligan issue comes in and, and uh, it, suddenly they're, they're thinking that there's somebody out there um, who, who has to be local. They couldn't have some drifter or some passerby uh, doing these two crimes eight months apart. Uh, and disposing of the, the remains in the way he or she did. Um, but that's about where it ended. And they had, you know, occasionally names would pop up, but they, they tended to be from people who were kind of settling scores with other people, not seriously, um, uh, not seriously thought out accusations. It was, you know, people reporting the guy who skipped out on his rent or something. So uh, it, it, it can't be overstated that in those first eight or 10 months, um, they had no ideas. They, they were flat flummoxed. They, they had nothing. The Jaeger family, of course, was beside themselves, in shock, in grief. They were all eager to help, especially Marietta, Susie's mom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they did what they could, but, but there wasn't much. They stayed on there in the campground for a long time. They were supported by the locals who'd bring food over or whatever they needed. Um, but uh, the time came that they had to go home to Michigan. And so they, they do that and they sit by the phone and they hope uh, that the news is going to break. They hope that their daughter is going to be found and returned to them. There was a part, uh, a secret part of them that, that believed she was dead. And another part that, that didn't want to believe that. So uh, they are patiently waiting for some information. The FBI is doing a good job of keeping them updated. The problem is that there's not much to tell them because nothing is happening. It's, it's a couple of months after the waitress 
was found and Susie Yeager's remains, both presumptive. Um, it was a couple months after that that the, the lead detective or the lead agent, Pete Dunbar, is, is in Quantico for some ordinary uh, routine training in the FBI. And he happens to listen, he attend a workshop by these two um, fellow FBI agents, one who had a background in psychology and another one who was known to be a, a great crime scene analyst. And they had gotten together and had an idea that there was a way to look at a crime scene and the evidence and, and deduce certain things about the behavior and the psychology of the perpetrator. Um, it, it hadn't really gotten traction because uh, Hoover opposed it, but Hoover was gone. He had recently died and more progressive leadership had come into the FBI and they gave these two agents, uh, Howard Teton and Pat Mullaney, a little longer leash. Um, and they were able to pursue some research a little more openly, even though on the street, cops and deputies and other law enforcement still were suspicious of this, this voodoo. And Dunbar attends this workshop, and when it's over, he thinks, you know, I've got nothing. Maybe these guys could help me. And he literally follows them back to their basement offices and presents um, uh, the story of Susie Yeager and of, of Sandy Smulligan, the waitress. Um, they, they examine his case file later and they, they assume that this is a, this might be a case that would be good to test, uh, their theory. And so th they tell him that, yes, they'll, uh, they'll create the first ever profile they, they considered it a safe one to test the theory. Um, you know, they, they thought this is, uh, this is a, a couple of kidnappings that end in murder. Um, so let's see if we can, let's see if we can come up with anything. Uh, I hate to use the word ordinary, but it, it tended to be a more ordinary case uh, on first first examination, of course, it grows into something far bigger and darker than they ever imagined. But at the beginning, they saw it as a no risk or a low risk case to test their theory. We will return after these brief messages. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. 
They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. We are back. So this first FBI profile, what were some of the characteristics they believed the killer they were hunting for possessed? Well, we have, you know, between 15 and 20 elements in this first profile. And uh, there are, some of it was experience and logic. Uh, some of it was guesswork. But you got to remember, they had no rule book. They had no roadmap. They had no established system. Uh, they had their experiences, but they had no model. It was all based on what they knew and, and like I say, a little bit of guesswork. Uh, you know, these days, we all, anybody that's watched TV or movies uh, or even read newspaper stories, uh, knows that the first presumption is that a serial killer tends to be a white male in his 20s. Uh, and that's because we have more than 50 years of data and today's profilers have talked to thousands of killers. They, they know, and they, they know that that's a predominant description. Teton and Mullaney had visited with a couple of killers, and they had no database. In this case, they deduced that the killer was a white male in his 20s because the crimes themselves seemed to require a, a, an astounding um, a degree of stealth and strength. That suggested whoever did it had military experience during Vietnam, which is going on at the time. That's largely male. They believed that this killer, uh, this abductor, and what they presumed was a killer, uh, had knowledge of surroundings, or he wouldn't have been able to get away as easily. 
he wouldn't have been able to take the risks that required to go into that crowded campground and abduct a little girl in the middle of the night uh, where maybe he can't see much in the dark either. Um, he had to know local law enforcement maybe was lacking in training and, and didn't have much experience with this kind of thing. And that suggested that knowledge about moving around at night and the training and the abilities of local law enforcement suggested he was local in that county. Uh, it was a large, it wasn't largely, it was almost completely white. So <laughs> you put all those things together and you come up with white male in his 20s. And that's kind of how it went. Some of their other elements, they believed that the unsub was probably fairly intelligent. It, it, the, the crimes showed somebody that was a highly organized thinker. And he had an had anticipated a lot of the investigation. Um, they deduced he was a loner and he probably wasn't married and probably had very little experience with women and that when he did, it didn't last. That's what they knew about people uh, who they presumed him to be among that, that, they didn't see any evidence that suggested that other than how it happened. So this was their experience. He, they believed his, his heterosexual experience was limited. Um, they believed he uh, worked alone in a solitary uh, profession like uh, cowboy or carpenter or something. And, and the reason is he doesn't want to interact with other people. You know, we all have different lives and, and criminals are no different. They just try to protect these secret lives that they have. So they would feel vulnerable among bosses and coworkers who were, who they presumed could see these secrets and know them. And so they don't want to work with other people. It was things like that. And, uh, and it goes on to be a little more complicated as they go. It, it just proceeded from there. They believed he had killed before. Some of this showed evidence that he was not a first-timer, that he had actually had some... Uh, the learning involved. He had progressed. So you see where they're going. They, they're, they're trying to tell the FBI agent and the local law enforcement the kind of person they'd be looking for. Um, the military thing would allow them to narrow their pool a little bit. Did they know he had military experience? No, it was a guess. But it was a good guess. And, and so they were able to save a little energy, a little bit of time uh, by looking at people with military experience. And that's the way a profile works. It's not always dead on, 
It, it it's just saying your guy or your woman, they are part of this limited subgroup of people or, or are likely members of that subgroup. Um, so that gives investigators a place to start. And that's what they did here. Right. So there were two separate murder investigations going on. As far as Sandy's case, the FBI believed that her boyfriend, Bob Harrison, might have had something to do with her death. But there was another character, a peripheral suspect named David Meyerhofer, also in the picture. Agent Dunbar, however, didn't really believe that he had anything to do with either Sandy or Susie's case. He, he thought David was odd and socially inept more than anything and felt sorry for him. Yeah, Dunbar at, at different times thinks they're wasting their time by going back with this, you know, and questioning this guy uh, because he always comes off as uh, decently intelligent, well-dressed, well-spoken, interested in the the work that the that the investigators were doing, even offering to help if he needed, if he could. Um, he didn't have any record of anything, not speeding tickets, not anything. He was. Um, he was an entrepreneur. He bought houses and remodeled them and rented them. Uh, he had great carpentry skills. Uh, he just didn't seem like uh, a killer. And he kept popping up for different reasons, but also being dismissed. Uh, I think he gets on the FBI's radar two or well, three or four times and then falls off the FBI's radar you know, as often, um, he had dated Sandy Smulligan, the waitress, um, once, and he had feelings for her, but she didn't much like him. She considered him to be odd, as most of the townsfolk did. They, they considered him just a little, a little off. Um, but, Small towns are populated by eccentrics, right? They, 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 that's just normal. Um, he, David, you know, sent chocolates and flowers, but she just wasn't interested. And he kept asking her and she kept rebuffing him. At the same time, she's going through a divorce. She has a boyfriend, Bob Harrison, uh, but she has other guys that are courting her. Um, and sometimes she goes out and sometimes she doesn't. She's not, you know, being lewd or loose with them. She's just, she's have she's free. And the local guys know that and she's pretty. So they're, they're, they're snuggling up as much as they can. Um, so all of those guys become potential uh, well, let's call them persons of interest. Um, in some ways, the FBI has moved forward a little bit, but nobody is popping up uh, as uh, a really good suspect. In fact, that David Meyerhofer that we were talking about 
took two lie detector tests and passed both of them without even any hint that he might be lying about something. So um, they were left flat-footed, and the frustration continued. Um, one of the uh, – moving to the next sort of important event, one of the elements of the profile that, that Teton and Mullaney delivered was that they believed the perpetrator in this case was uh, that this was a very intimate crime to them, to him, and that as such, it would take on intimate uh, values to him. And the way we celebrate birthdays and wedding anniversaries, he would celebrate some kind of anniversary too. So they warned Dunbar to be especially vigilant on anniversaries important to the crimes. Um, on, on the first year anniversary of Susie Yeager's disappearance, the phone rings at the family home in Michigan and the caller identifies himself as the abductor of the little girl uh, claims that he still has her and he's brainwashing her to think he's her father. Uh, they're not sure about whether this is a hoax or not until he, del he delivers a description of, of the little girl, of a, of a small defect in the little girl's hand. That they that they had never discussed publicly. In fact, her mother had never even mentioned it to the FBI. Uh, when he mentions it, then they know that they have the uh, the little girl's abductor, and again, what who they presumed had killed her. Um, so. Uh, now the, the, this moves forward a little bit, even though they don't know who that is. They don't know where the call is coming from. Uh, they know very little, but they are moving forward a little bit. And they're, they're, they're while they're frustrated still, um, they feel like they've made some headway. So that's up to one year later, uh, and this phone call comes. And the call, uh, the way he treats Marietta on the call, it's sadistic, right? He taunts her, gives her the false hope that her daughter is still alive. Um, he said that she was traveling around with him. He, he was taking her to places like Disneyland. But by the end of the call, he's sobbing. And it was an odd trajectory for a phone conversation. Yeah, absolutely. He, uh, and this was a clue to the profilers as well. Uh, he did just what you said. He taunted her. He was saying sadistic things. Uh, uh, it was, it was horrifying. And, and if you try to see the things that he was saying through the eyes of a grieving mother, uh, you can sense that it was more horrific than even what we're talking about right now. 
But she hangs in there. She stays on the line with him and she talks to him. She's, she's uh, amazingly stalwart in it, even though inside she's afraid and she's uh, sickened and, and he's getting to her. But she hangs in there. She stays on the line with him. She challenges him. She talks. She questions. By the end of the call, as you point out, he is kind of losing his composure, not getting angry, but getting sad. Uh, In fact, kind of crying at the end. And the reason, say the profilers later, is because he wanted control of her and that that was the reason for his sadism and his taunting but when she stood up to it he lost control he 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 couldn't control her and so he was um unable or at least handicapped when dealing with strong women uh, and they they suddenly knew that about him uh, or believed they did and uh, that, that, again, moves it a little forward, and they were able to say, okay, well, you're looking at somebody who, you know, in his relationships with people, likes, likes to be in control uh, and is um, put off when he doesn't have it. Uh, so they, they said, you, you need to look at somebody with a particular relationship to his mother um, because they believe that's where it came from. Right. Is that true? I don't know. Uh, we don't know, actually, to this day whether that was true. Um, events in the investigation keep, keep us from knowing. But, um, yeah, he uh, th- these were deductions they were making along the way uh, based on what they were learning. Back again after a quick break. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? 
Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We have returned once more. So Dunbar still believes that Meyerhofer really doesn't have anything to do with this. But agents Mullaney and Teton are more than ever convinced that Meyerhofer needs to be looked at. So Dunbar contacts the U.S. Marine Corps, and Dunbar is also able to access Meyerhofer's old therapy records and uncovers some really uncomfortable details about Meyerhofer's earlier years. Yeah, he he does a deep dive on David Meyerhofer, and uh, in some ways, you you turn up some ordinary things like being in the military in the Marine Corps, and some things extraordinary like those psychological examinations of him. Uh, he. He is warming to the idea that Meyerhofer is is a good suspect, but um, he's still not convinced. And there's there's some conflict between him and the profilers. The profilers are becoming more and more convinced that Meyerhofer is a good suspect. Uh, Dunbar not as quickly, but he he does. He does his due diligence, and like I say, he does a deep dive on Meyerhofer, and he finds some things that are intriguing, uh, particularly in Dunbar's or in uh, Meyerhofer's psychological profile. So uh, we are now moving more deliberately toward some suspects and some people of interest. Uh, at uh, as, as they get more interested in Meyerhofer, another call comes to the uh, Jaeger residence in Michigan. Uh, and, and this time it's a little more pointed and the caller says that he has a little girl, her little girl with him. And he holds the phone up and there's a child's voice in the background. Um, and, uh, it doesn't sound like Susie to Marietta, but 
um, there's some concern that even if it isn't her, he has another child. Uh, so now there's an urgency about this. At this point, they're, they're, they're really interested in Meyerhofer and he's under surveillance. Uh, they learn that that phone call came from Salt Lake City, a motel in Salt Lake City. Uh, but Meyerhofer hasn't been out of their sight in Manhattan, Montana during that period. So how could it be him? Once again, the interest in him shudders a little bit. They're just not sure they have the right guy. Um, so the investigation continues and, uh, you know, we can talk about that. But uh, I have a feeling you have more questions. Well, yeah. So not long before that second call, Dunbar decided that what might be a helpful idea was to have Marietta meet with Meyerhofer. So he arranges a sit-down. Uh, actually, they talk a couple of times. Would you share with us the gist of, of these interactions between them? Yeah, the it goes back to that that belief in in the profile among the profilers that he um didn't react well with strong women and they had the idea that if they could put them face to face and she could just do what she had done in previous phone calls that maybe they'd shake him up a little bit um uh, she, they did that. They took her out to Montana. They put them in the same room and, and she repeatedly accused him of being the killer and would say, I know you took my daughter. I, I know it's you. Please, please tell me, tell us uh, what you did. Tell us that you did it. And he stood his ground and, and he was even sympathetic. He, he, said, I, ma'am, I know, I know what this must feel like, but I'm not your guy. Um, so it, it was an interesting thing. Uh, Marietta comes away more convinced that it's him. Uh, call it mother's intuition. But uh, there's no proof. There's, there's no smoking gun here. Um, they also arranged, by the way, that, that face-to-face meeting unknown to him. They wanted it to be a surprise. Uh, and they felt that was going to betray certain things about him, um, if he had to confront it, you know, (laughs) without thinking about it. So, uh, it didn't. But that's the way they were thinking. So um, that's an important moment in the sense that uh, he did talk to her, but that he knew that she that she knew. And a, a later phone call between him purporting to be somebody else. Um, she calls him David and he reacts by saying, I, who are you talking about? Who is David? Who, 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 who would that? I'm not David. And she persisted and said, I know you're David. Um, and he was shaken up by that. So, 
th there are all these interesting interactions between Marietta Yeager and David Meyerhofer uh, that really lead to the to the outcome that that the book describes. Right. And so the FBI comes up with a plan. They wanted Marietta to identify Meyerhofer's voice as the one she spoke with on the telephone call. So they create a, a, a lineup, a telephone lineup, and they have five people call her, including Meyerhofer, to see if she can pick his voice out. Yeah. Well, they had recorded the, the one call where the, the, he purported to have a little girl. And uh, they took that recording and uh, excerpted some things. They then had five, pe five men, including Meyerhofer, and including a cousin of his who kind of sounded like him. Uh, and then they took that script and, and had them recite it. They presented that you know, they played those recordings for Marietta and for her husband separately in a different room. They both um, very quickly and very confidently identified David's voice. Voice printing at that point was not, not considered a trustworthy forensic science, um, but it gave them uh, some sense of whether they were on the right track. Had they needed to go to court with that, it might have been questioned and might have uh, not even been allowed. But it it gave them some idea of whether they were on the right path or not, and they believed they were. So when did things really start getting hot for Meyerhofer? It was uh, a... a casual, voluntary search of his place that turned up some things that were incriminating, not smoking guns, but were incriminating. Uh, so uh, at that point, they were not ready to slap the cuffs on him, so to speak, uh, but they were pretty confident he was their guy. Uh, it's after that Salt Lake City phone call and the possibility that he had another child that they believed they had to act. They, they couldn't let him continue to walk. There were some questions about whether he could make that trip. They were later, they later learned that he actually had escaped in, in the dark from his apartment and gotten away from the surveillance. Um, that's when they swung into action. Uh, it leads uh, a couple of days to his arrest. And in the uh, search of his home subsequent to that arrest, they find the smoking gun. They find uh, human remains in his freezer that turn out uh, quickly to prove uh, are proven to be Sandy Smolligan's remains. So uh, at that point, they they have him. There, there's no question. 
his lawyer who believe has believed in him all along has believed that he's just being harassed by the cops um, is shown this evidence. And the first thing he does is he goes back onto the front lawn and he vomits. Uh, then he confronts David himself and, and, and very angrily says, you are going to hang. There's no question because this human remains in your freezer. Uh, the, the jury is going to have a tough time looking past that. Yeah. David then proposes, would they take the death penalty off the table if I could confess to two more murders? The lawyer is not only astounded, but so is the prosecutor when the defense lawyer comes to him and says, how about if you take the death penalty off the table and we confess to two more killings? Uh, ultimately, they agree to do that. Uh, David is taken into an overnight interview, starts at about 2 a.m., uh, and their goal is to get him to describe these four deaths, Susie, Sandy Smolligan, and it turns out the two little boys uh, in 67 and 68. So uh, they have now a guy confessing to four murders. And tomorrow they figure they'll come back and ask more questions about other cases, about his background and that sort of thing. Um, but overnight, uh, they lose their chance. So I don't know if I want to spoil it for people, but, uh, um, that's one reason today, 50 years later, we still have a lot of questions about the motivations, the psychology, the behavior here. Um, and that's part of the story in this book, uh, about, uh, regardless of the, 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 the profiling that goes on and what we know about psychology of criminals, we still have questions about this case. Yeah, the discovery of Sandy's remains in his freezer, specifically her hand with red-painted nails, was absolutely gruesome. Uh, yeah, his confession, unfortunately, they didn't get a chance to talk to him for long. What did he tell them that he had done with Susie? Well, he admitted that he had abducted her. He, he had taken her to this abandoned ranch out in the middle of nowhere. He had molested her. Um, and when she reacted, crying and screaming, he killed her. He, he strangled her. He then... Um, butchered her. I'm sorry if your your listeners are sensitive to that. I apologize, but um, he butchered her. Then he cremated her and pulverized her bones and spread them out over this ranch, just the way he did later with Sandy Smolligan, whose murder he also confessed to that night. So. Uh, there, there's some unsettling parts of that in the book. I, I uh, put the actual uh, 
conversation that happened. I have that among a hundred, or I'm sorry, among 13,000 FBI documents. I have the actual transcript of that interview. So that's in the book. It's not my interpretation of what they say, my dramatization of what they say. It's what they said. And I think readers going to find that fascinating. What was his, his motive, do you think, for killing Sandy? Uh, good question. We don't know. Um, the, the way he described her killing was that he intended to abduct her. Um, he, he went to her apartment, which was actually within sight of his, uh, that he went in and he, you know, tied her hands together and put tape over her mouth and put her in her car to take her out someplace to do God knows what, maybe to kill her, maybe to rape her, maybe just to talk to her. Along the way, though, she suffocates from that tape over her mouth and nose. So uh, she's dead by the time he gets out to that ranch. And then he repeats that awfulness of cremation, uh, butchery and cremation and pulverization of the bones and the scattering of those remains. So there's Susie Yeager and Sandy Smulligan, their, their pulverized bones all spread across this ranch area. And um, that's what ultimately, when they find it, leads to the profile, which then leads to him. So uh, it's, it's kind of a complicated uh, way for me to explain it, but it, I think it makes sense in the book. What about his, his motive for killing the Boy Scout, Michael Rainey? Uh, do, do you have any idea? I, I, you know, I've asked this question about what was, what was the serial part of his killings. What was what was the thing that tied them all together? We have two teenage boys, two young teenage boys. We have a seven-year-old girl, and we have a nineteen-year-old woman. Um, there's nothing similar about them. Uh, he uses a gun in one case. He uses a knife in another. He uh, God knows what he used. Uh, Sandy Smalligan just dies and suffocates. Uh, and he strangles uh, little Susie. So not even the weaponry and the method of dying is uh, of killing is the same. Uh, so what's it serial? Because that's what we've been trained to think about. The, the kind of victims, the weapons, what motivated him. Nobody knows. They never got a chance to go that deep with him. Um, I personally think... We see in his psychological profile uh, some conversations that he had with the psychiatrist about his sexuality. Uh, he seemed to a lot of people, including the psychiatrist, to be a gay man who couldn't deal with being gay and that it was something that he didn't want to confront and that that, that was the underlying motive. 
I talked to a forensic psychologist about this who said the, the kind of victim, the kind of weapons, the way they died aren't where the serial part of this was. The serial part of this was his rage. He, he killed all of these people in a rage. Where that rage came from is the question. And it's an unanswered question at this point. So Marietta is a very strong woman. She did an amazing job of, of keeping her composure through all of this outwardly, despite the intense grief she obviously experienced. After the funeral of Susie in, in Montana, Marietta goes into the junk shop run by Meyerhofer's mother, and they actually have a brief exchange. They do, and, and it's two mothers both grieving for different reasons. Uh, she forgives David's mother. Um, David's mother had nothing to do with it, but she wanted to allay the embarrassment, and, and uh, she does a good job of that. She really does... Uh, honestly and genuinely feel like this is two mothers talking about a terrible event in both of their lives. Um, there's no question that without Marietta, you and I are talking today about a cold case that happened in Montana that we don't know who did it. Um, and that's, that's the fact she, without her, this crime doesn't get solved and she's a hero. She's a hero of this story. So what we have is this very basic human anguish uh, over on that side of it. And, and the pain that, that we know she felt. And then over on this other end, we have this scientific pursuit to create something that will help them find more bad guys and maybe prevent some of that grief that we saw. But we have the, the human element and the scientific element, uh, the heart and the head. And I think that's one of the beauties of this particular story is that, you know, we get to talk about a real conflict between the heart and the head. And um, it, 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 it attracted me. Again, I go back to, I don't pick stories that I can screw up, and I couldn't screw this one up. It's a beautiful story about that, about a grieving mother and these two uh, pioneering guys trying to come up with something to help the rest of us. Right, right. Why do you call him Shadow Man? Because, you know, he functions in the shadows. Uh, Susie Yeager's abduction happens in the middle of the night. And for, for some reason, he's able to navigate this park and all the other campers that are there uh, and go in, get her and get out without being noticed. Same thing in the Boy Scouts killing. Same thing in the shooting of the boy on the bridge. Um, same thing in the abduction of Sandy Smalligan and that, that then he can function almost completely in the shadows and, and is comfortable in the shadows, 
even his personality exists in light and dark. So to me, uh, he was of the shadows, and uh, that's what led to the title. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great title. So your book is officially out in bookstores and online. Yes, yes indeed. Anywhere you buy books. Well, well, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, once again, thank you for making time for me. Again, I have been speaking to Ron Francel, author of Shadow Man, an elusive psycho killer and the birth of FBI profiling. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.